The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And so we built these partnerships with researchers and have a companies who will reach out to us and say, you know, we've got a school district in this county where we're seeing an intrusion an hour ago. If you all can get there quickly, you can make a difference. And we will rapidly give that to our regional team members with not just the fact of the intrusion, but also rich technical details to say, you know, this is the host ID. This is the IP address. Uh, these are the credentials. Uh, if you take this concrete step right now, you can prevent harm. And we've done over 400 of these notifications this calendar year alone. Uh, which are events where we've actively prevented a ransomware group from achieving their objectives. Now, we know that's only a slice of the overall problem, but we're really excited for these sort of programs, which complement just our broader guidance and assessments to actually help uh, harden the environment against these actors and and increase their marginal cost a bit for targeting uh, U.S. networks. I'm Brian Cunningham. And I'm David Chris, And this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 10th, 2023. Eric Goldstein is the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Having served previously as Global Head of Cybersecurity Policy, Strategy, and Regulation at Goldman Sachs, where he led development of the firm's cybersecurity risk management program and in cybersecurity positions in DHS, as well as practicing cybersecurity law in the private sector. We talk all things cybersecurity with Eric, including the U.S. National Cybersecurity Strategy and, of course, our favorite topic, U.S. government cyber lanes in the road. Eric also discusses ransomware and what it's like for a lawyer to serve in an operational position. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 10th. Eric Goldstein of DHS on All Matters Cyber. You are the Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at our country's lead cybersecurity agency. Sounds like you're close to the action at CISA. How did you get there and how are you enjoying it? Um, thanks so much, Ron and David. Let me just say at the outset, it is an absolute privilege uh, to be on the podcast. I am a longtime fan and listener, and so just uh, wonderful to be uh, with you both. And, and yes, every day uh, is an adventure uh, at CISA and in cybersecurity. Uh, you know, I've, I've had the privilege to be uh, in this role now for Little over two and a half years, uh, I came to this role uh, from the financial sector, uh, where I spent a, uh, a few years at Goldman Sachs, uh, leading a portion of the global security program there. Uh, but before that, I was at CISA's uh, precursor agency, uh, the, the poorly named uh, National Protection and Programs Directorate within DHS. Uh, but that's given me a really wonderful experience, both in how cybersecurity looks from the public and private sectors, uh, how far our agency has come uh, over the past few years, and frankly, how much work we have yet to do. Well, there's certainly a lot of activity. We are, David and I are on record as being um, 
very complimentary of the new-ish national cyber strategy. We uh, covered it in depth, as you know, with your boss. But now it's three months old, and uh, how goes the implementation? It, it, it is really, I think, as, as you've noted on the podcast, as well as in the pages of, of the blog, a really exciting and unusual strategy. And that's because it really does reflect a shift in how we approach cybersecurity in this country, which I think is unique. Uh, a lot of strategies are a, a list of things that are good to do, a list of principles uh, that reflect continuity. Uh, and this strategy really does reflect a, a qualitative change. Uh, and I think a lot of that work was coalescing even before the strategy was issued. But now the fact that it's codified in executive branch doctrine does provide a catalyst for the work that we need to do. Uh, I'll really call out in particular the, the focus in the strategy of shifting the burden of cybersecurity, which I think most uh, surveyors of this space have, have long thought, right? The idea that if we're going to rely on school districts, on local hospitals, on water utilities to handle their own security alone against an advanced adversary, a nation state, a ransomware group, they're not going to succeed, right? The, the threat is too sophisticated, the resource is too scarce. And so the national strategy really calls for the burden to be borne by those who can actually bear it, uh, which in many cases is the providers of the technology products and services that we all rely upon every day. Now, CISA was already moving in this direction in partnership with other agencies like our friends at NIST, but the national strategy really put this on the front page. And so shortly after the strategy was issued, uh, we released with six other countries a, a white paper, a guidance document. It's really the first chapter in how we should think about what is a safe and secure technology product and what should customers start demanding to give us that confidence that the products we're using are actually fit for purpose given the threat environment that we know we exist in every day. I think that's an example of a leading indicator of the work that's going to be done under the strategy, recognizing that a lot of these shifts will take time, effort, and resources to fully put in place. So let's drill down into that shifting of burden a little bit. Uh, we certainly reported favorably on it for lots of reasons, not the least of which is uh, I am a cyber lawyer in private practice, so I figure that's got to be good for our business. But as a kind of, we, we asked Jen this, I think, but uh, since you're also a lawyer, uh, recovering once in future, however you want to put it, how do you operationalize this burden shift? In other words, I know the strategy prefers uh, persuasion, economic and otherwise, versus regulation, but are we talking about potentially, you know, model laws to shift the burden of proof in cyber cases? How, how, how are you going to actually shift the burden? Yeah, it's a really important and exciting question. And the strategy, of course, forecasts potential future shifts in liability regimes, potential future shifts in regulation. But our view at CISA not being a regulatory agency in cybersecurity, we don't have to wait. And one of the really exciting outputs from the work that we've done over the past few months, including our, our white paper release uh, in April, is where we've spoken to security and business leaders at major technology companies, they all say, we agree. We we want to provide products yeah. that are safe and secure by design and default. When we talk to leaders at major enterprises across sectors, uh, finance, energy, retail, what have you, uh, they all say, we want to buy products that are safe and secure by design and default. And so we think that there are 
market mechanisms that we can employ here that are going to bridge what we see as, as a bit of a gap today between technology providers and their, and their customers to be able to say, here's what we agree on are the characteristics of a product that is, again, safe and secure by design and default. Um, let's get some agreement, uh, whether nationally or sectorally, on what that looks like. And then let's build in those market incentives to say tech providers can meet their customers where they want to be and customers can send that market demand signal to drive investment towards more secure, reliable and trusted products. And we think that today we can make progress there even absent any future changes in legal regimes that that may occur because we don't think that the supply and demand side here are too far apart. We think that what's really missing is that is that clarity, that consensus of what is a secure product and how do we know what to ask for. So, Eric, I mean, feel free to be as you know specific and and name names for you know companies or <laughs> entities that are playing nicely with you and those that are digging in their heels, but. Um, not really expecting that. But I mean, is it fair to say that your efforts here are aimed more at the long tail of the market because the major providers, the ones we can all think about in the cloud services and communication space are basically already doing pretty well? Or is that not quite right? And it's actually a more broad push on your part? You know, we'd say that that every company has more to do and more to invest in this space. And, you know, we are working with companies like Microsoft, like Google, um, all of whom acknowledge that, that, that they are deeply focused on security by design as a, as a fundamental corporate principle and that they are investing every day in advancing the security of their products. And in fact, both of those companies have come out publicly with statements for some of the work that they are doing aligned with this, um, this aspect of the national strategy. And so certainly, you know, it, it is and will be the case that, you know, as you frame it, David, some of the longer tail of companies that perhaps are less resource, uh, will have a harder time potentially, uh, uh, meeting the mark for a product that is, uh, safe and secure by design and default. And we should think about how to help support, incentivize those companies in getting there. So we maintain innovation. We allow small business to thrive in this market. Um, it's also the case that even the big players recognize that, you know, they have, uh, investment to make. I'll offer one example here, which is, which is just, uh, an exemplar of this trend. You know, we have focused a lot in CISA about the fact that a significant proportion of known vulnerabilities are attributed to the use of what are called memory unsafe coding languages, right? These are, these are languages where, where just by the nature um, of their, of their semantics, um, they lead to exploitable vulnerabilities. Um, and we have seen major tech companies make real material investments in rewriting uh, a lot of their product in programming languages that are more secure and less vulnerable, and that's applicable across the board. And so there's work to do here regardless of company size, but the work may be different based upon their maturity and resources. Do you have the resources to counteract the sort of anti-competitive trends? You mentioned this, that you're aware of that tension. That is, I should probably spell it out, the tension between, you know, either imposing or incentivizing companies to adhere to high standards that are easier for the big companies to meet and may in fact be influenced by the decisions of the big companies, which can create a moat insulating them from competition. Are, are you 
having been having stated you're sensitive to that, what what can you really do for the little fellas out there who are trying to compete with Google and Microsoft and, and other companies, but you know don't have the resources to do everything that those big companies can do? Yeah, you know, there's there's a bit of a paradox here because I think on the one hand, you know, it is it is a truism that we need to to fully recognize that larger companies may be more able to pour resources into deploying more secure default configurations or designing their products uh, more securely. That takes time, that takes people, that takes resources. At the same time, newer companies, insurgent companies may have the ability to design their products from the ground up in ways that are safe and mm. secure by design and default. And so we think that no tech debt. That's right. That's, that's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, our view is that, that this is a trend that, you know, will, will enable those companies that both are larger and frankly more critical, uh, to our economy to put in the necessary investments while also enabling creative, innovative upstart companies to really compete on security and bring new ideas, new concepts into the field. But we have to pursue both of those avenues as a country, as an economy simultaneously. Got it. So. I'm going to steal David's favorite question just because I can. Um, <laughs> part of the strategy's purpose, the national cyber strategy's purpose, it seems to us, at least along with other recent legislation and potential executive orders, is to help the U.S. government sort out the lanes in the road for U.S. cybersecurity. So how is that going? And, and I guess specifically, Eric, since you've been with CISA since CISA existed in a way, um, how do you see the lanes evolving since your prior stint in government? Yeah, you know, it is, it has never been better and it has come in extraordinary way. And I think that there is uh, extraordinary collaboration between, uh, CISA and our partner agencies, whether FBI, NSA, U.S. Cyber Command, the sector risk management agencies. And there's also, I think, increasing consensus about the role of CISA as the lead civilian cybersecurity agency and as a provider of expertise, of resources, of capacity to organizations across sectors. And that that in no way diminishes the criticality, for example, of sector risk management agencies like the departments of energy, treasury, health and human services in providing deep expertise into the nuances of their of their sectors, their use of technology, the risk posed therefrom. Or the role of partners like FBI and Cyber Command on imposing costs against our adversaries via their unique authorities. You know, CISA has a broad but specific lane, which is being that technocratic leader for what is the right answer in cybersecurity and how can we drive adoption of the right measures, the right capabilities, the right controls across organizations, across sectors. David, do you want to drill down into that anymore? Well, I mean, I guess I'm just curious how are how are all the personalities? <laughs> and Eric, I'm not trying to end your career or anything here. So you know, again, feel free to you know say something bland. But I mean, unity of effort, you know, across this very complicated, multi-siloed cyber hydra here, is everybody increasingly getting along better because there's increasing understanding about and and maybe acceptance of who's supposed to do what. You painted a pretty rosy picture, but you know there. There's inevitable friction. The interagency is a known pit of vipers, even at the best of times. So, I mean, <laughs> is it really getting better? Is it really functioning well? Um, where, where are the points of friction are, if any, that you think still need to be, you know, sanded down or smoothed out? 
you know, I'd say if it's if it's a, a pit of vipers at this point, they're largely defanged. Um, you know, by <laughs> and large, the you heard here first, folks. Interagency vipers solved. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I would say is is there has been coincident maturation across the agencies in this space, such such that operationally, when an incident happens, there's a new vulnerability, there's a new intrusion campaign, there's a new threat actor, you know, largely our operational teams at FBI, NSA, Cyber Command, we know our roles, we go to work. Um, and that wasn't always true. But I think, frankly, the velocity of cyber incidents and vulnerabilities uh, that have affected our country uh, over the past several years have given us, you know, perhaps unfortunately, plenty of opportunity to practice, refine, and get this right. You know, I'll offer, we are really excited this year as called for in the National Cybersecurity Strategy uh, to develop a revised version uh, of the National Cyber Incident Response Plan, the eloquently uh, named NSERP, uh, which has not been updated uh, in, in six or seven years. And that's going to really give us an opportunity to codify a lot of this structural uh, maturation across the interagency and also account for the key role of, of the private sector. And I think, you know, that that wasn't included uh, in your question. But I do think that also, even as we have matured relationships across the interagency, we've also really clarified the role of the private sector uh, in cyber incident response and coordination because of course we know, uh, as as both of you do from your uh, from your work in, in prior practice, most cyber incidents are managed, coordinated, and handled by the private sector. The victim will bring in outside counsel. The victim will bring in a third party as a response firm and manage the incident in accordance with their requirements as an enterprise, and that's fine, right? What we need to enable is that information sharing and collaboration, such that federal agencies are benefiting from. The, the tactics, the indicators, the lessons learned from those intrusions so we can help others. And we've made a lot of progress there over the past several years. The NCIRP revision gives us a chance to codify that emergent model in a way that lets it both scale and uh, be adopted more broadly. All right. So I'm going to go with that pivot and, and press you on one thing. So it seems really clear that, say, since the low point of June 2013, you know, thanks to Fast Eddie Snowden, relations between <laughs> the private sector and the tech sector of the U.S. you know, economy in particular and the government have gotten better. They really couldn't have been much worse than they were right around then. And it's in part maybe because there's no longer as much of a perceived need to, you know, demonstrate independence from the U.S. government and appeal to European cloud customers by showing that independence. But I mean, A, do you agree you've been in and out, so maybe you have a little bit of a snapshot perspective uh, on how much better things have gotten in the last 10 years and why and what the future holds in the field of either what used to be called public-private partnerships, but I think is now increasingly fashionable to call operational collaboration. So how, how, how much better is it? Why? And where is it going next? Yep. Yep. Fabulous question. So it is dramatically better. I will offer a few reasons. The first is just the trajectory of the threat and the risk. Uh, I think, you know, there is now a broad accounting that as well articulated in this year's annual threat assessment, the cyber threat facing our country and companies therein is, is fairly extraordinary. And that is due, um, both to nation state adversaries, as well as, of course, the 
the ongoing epidemic of, of ransomware attacks targeting entities uh, across sectors. I think there's a recognition that you know, the private sector can't go it alone. The government can't go it alone. America can't go it alone. We've got to do this uh, in partnership or we're not going to succeed. I think we've, we've also tried, you know, both at CISA and the broader government community in really focusing on both sides of the calculus for a private company when considering collaboration with government, which is both risk and value. And that is to say, you know, companies have you know, thoughtful concerns about potential risk from working with or sharing information uh, with the government. Uh, some of those may be, may be well-founded, uh, some of those may be less so, but we have to take them where they are. And so we have invested a lot in both ensuring a well-grounded understanding of the, the protections uh, both in statute and policy that companies uh, maintain when sharing information and working with CISA, but also focusing on the value side, right? Because if, if you know, if risk is not zero um, and value is indeterminate, then a company might make a decision to say, well, the risk is still higher than the value. And so from the government side, we have to show value as part of the partnership. And that is really the, the transition from uh, the, the, I will say, you know, the, the stagnant phrase, uh, partnership to the, to the more modern phrase, operational collaboration, which really means moving from episodic, ad hoc, high friction uh, to something that is much more persistent, outcome-oriented, and low friction. Um, and what that means in practice, very frankly, is getting operators in government, talking to operators in the private sector, ideally in persistent collaboration channels, where we are continuously working on shared problems towards shared outcomes around a shared goal. And we've made some real progress there. You know, at CISA, we, of course, have a construct called the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Uh, that is not just CISA. It is FBI, NSA, Cyber Command, our partners at SRMAs. And at this point, over 140 companies across sectors, as well as our international search partners. And we think the model's maturing, the model's evolving, but it's the right model because it enables us to both show value, even as we try to maintain understanding of limited risks. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, 
and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, Eric. The, without giving away any secrets, obviously, you know, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has been interpreted pretty strictly in a lot of quarters to 
potentially limit even what I would call defensive operations by private companies, you know, putting a little bit of code in, a, in an electronic record that gets it to phone home when it hits Beijing, something like that. Do you see more of a role of private companies in actually conducting defensive or maybe slightly offensive operations with the best, with, with the right legal authority? Or, or how is that moving? We don't, and, and here's why. I think among the, the areas where government has really made progress uh, over the past several years is our ability to glean information from adversary activity targeting American networks really quickly pivot that information over to those agencies with the authorities and the ability to impose costs on adversaries on foreign networks and then share that information back. You know, I had the privilege of, of sharing the stage at the RSA conference with uh, my friend, Major General Joe Hartman, uh, the commander of Cyber Command's Cyber National Mission Force. And what we talked about was really this, this flywheel model uh, where uh, adversary activity targeting American networks is rapidly shared by CISA back to Cyber Command so they can take action uh, overseas. And the inverse being equally true when, when Cyber Command is taking action on a foreign network and they identify information relating to targeting of the U.S. entity, that information is shared back uh, to, to CISA for our use for our defensive operations. And, you know, during during our RSA panel, we shared some, some newly declassified uh, examples of where, for example, uh, CISA has identified nation-state activity on federal networks, on the networks of, of K-12 educational entities. We shared that information back to Cyber Command. Uh, CNMF, and they were able to take action very quickly and reciprocally. You know, they've been able to share information from their operations that have helped helped us actually notify entities before harm occurs. We think that if we can do that kind of work at scale, we can get that flywheel really humming. You know, that is a way for the government to focus on, frankly, what we should be doing, uh, which is imposing costs on and deterring our country's adversaries, and let companies focus on securing and safeguarding their own networks. Just a real quick one. If a company uh, wants to explore being part of the JCDC, what's the best way to do that? Yep. So we have a JCDC uh, website uh, on CISA.gov. Um, and I think you know, really importantly, JCDC is a is a big tent model. It is it is not a membership club. Uh, there are <laughs> myriad ways for, for entities to collaborate. They can be in a collaboration channel. They can be in a proactive planning effort. They can help review our cyber defense products. Um, and so we encourage really any organization with interest, with intent to collaborate, to reach out and we'll find a way to get involved. Got it. A couple of questions. I guess one is a super nerdy doctrinal question, which I'm pretty sure I know the answer to. And that is, you know, it is part of intelligence community doctrine. So maybe not for CISA per se, but certainly for your friends, Joe Hartman and, and others over at NSA and Cyber Command, that they don't, you know, conduct intelligence activities to aid U.S. industry competitively the way many countries do do. Do you run up against that when you're trying to do these operational collaboration efforts uh, and end up sort of papering things in really weird ways to try to avoid running afoul of that requirement? Or is it just covered under your protection authorities? And since they're related to critical infrastructure, it's just fine. Just sort of wondering whether the lawyers have given you a hard time on that. We have not run into that barrier in part because all of our collaborative efforts in this area are grounded in adversary activity 
targeting American networks. And so, you know, we are yeah. we are not enabling exploratory operations. Everything that we are doing is grounded in confirmed or presumed adversary targeting or intrusions into U.S. networks. And so I think that leaves us very well grounded both in our authorities at CISA and DHS and those of our partners. Dave, I know you got a follow-up. I want to get, get to that. But I just want to say, as a public service, I've been in and out of the intelligence community since 1985. And every iteration of every job I've ever had, the United States gets accused of doing what a lot of other countries in the world do, which is using their intelligence community to steal economic secrets to advantage yeah. our companies. And as far as I know, we have never done it, at least not that I'm aware of it. I've been in and out a lot. So I just like to put that on the record because we always get lumped in with all the countries that do it as part of their regular intelligence doctrine. And I don't think we do. No, back in the day, Jim Clapper came out and was very explicit about it. And I don't think there's been any walk back of that, but it's more just whether that's actually getting in the way of these collaboration yeah. efforts. But Eric, you make a, a, the expected argument, which is, no, this is protection. This isn't, you know, spying on Airbus to help Boeing or something like that. The follow up is if, if folks want to join the JCDC, which is nice, can they, can they also join Morgan's shop at the cybersecurity collaboration <laughs> center? I mean, how are they supposed to think about you know, all of the many, uh, or at least several, you know, U.S. government touch points, can they can they join all the clubs or should they just come to you and you'll tell them where else to go? <laughs> or no. how, how does the company approach that? <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, our partners at, at NSA's uh, Cyber Collaboration Center uh, is our, our, our critical partners in our efforts. Uh, you know, Rob Joyce is an extraordinary partner to, to our mission uh, here at CISA. And I think we are jointly committed to our shared success. Um, you know, CISA, of course, has an inherently cross-sectoral mission. Uh, and so really every organization across our critical sectors, uh, you know, we want to work with. Uh, but that does not mean that those organizations should not also be working with and collaborating with their relevant SRMAs. And so, of course, uh, our friends at, at NSA as the SRMA for the defense industrial base sector, uh, as expected, they have deep relationships and partners, uh, partnerships with those dip companies, including uh, through, through Morgan's team at the Cyber Collaboration Center. Um, and we support, enable, I want to to catalyze that. Uh, and, you know, we have team members who are embedded with the team at NSA. The reciprocal is true here. And so, you know, it, in general, our goal is to enable more collaboration, not less, but also to ensure that there's no wrong door. And so at JCDC, at CISA, we are glad to be uh, that front door, that catalyst for across the sectoral collaboration. If there's a company that is more comfortable going first to their SRMA, we support that as well. Right now, the problem is that there isn't enough collaboration, that there are, are too many companies that are not engaged with the government. And so whatever we can do to open all the doors and drive that collaboration, we'll figure out inside government how to affect the dots. Okay. And that's true even with the sort of uh, somewhat enlarged concept of DIP as the sector. Is that right? Defense industrial base for our listeners that aren't, aren't familiar with that term. I mean, if you take a broad cut at DIB, it starts to overlap substantially. So you get some sector overlap potentially, but that's not proving to be uh, too challenging for you. It isn't. It isn't. You know, we, we work closely with our partners at, at NSA to ensure a shared understanding of our collaborative missions. Uh, and thus far, you know, that, that has proven to be effective on the ground, even as we simultaneously mature both of our collaborative constructs and our agencies. Outstanding. Ransomware, obviously, at least from my optic, Eric, remains one of our most durable, but also rapidly evolving cyber threats. Talk a little bit about 
CISA's approach to ransomware and especially about the pre-ransomware notification tool? You know, this has really been a evolving model for our team here at CISA because, of course, we have observed with extraordinary concern as with the broader community about the real horrific impacts of ransomware on organizations uh, throughout the country, you know, hospitals, diverting patients, uh, school districts, closing down classes, these uh, departments unable to, to uh, direct officers to calls. And so in addition to our usual work of providing guidance, providing best practices, providing assessments, you know, we've been thinking hard about what work can we do to more actively reduce the risk posed by these attacks on American organizations. And so we have two new programs uh, that stood up this year that we think uh, really make a difference. The first was actually codified in law uh, in, in the incident reporting statute that I'm sure we'll get to uh, in a moment, uh, which is called the Ransomware Vulnerability Warning Pilot. Uh, and this is a program where we use both our in-house and commercial tools to, first of all, figure out which vulnerabilities are ransomware actors actually using uh, to compromise American organizations, uh, finding organizations that have those vulnerabilities facing the internet on their networks, and then using our regional team members actually getting out there knocking on doors and saying, hey, we know that this vulnerability is being used you know, by, by the clock group uh, right now. You should really patch this thing before some harm happens. And, and we've had pretty amazing success driving mitigation of vulnerabilities across hundreds of organizations before they're impacted by an intrusion. But we realize we can also do a bit more because part of the trust relationships that we built here at CISA are partnerships with both security researchers and cyber threat intelligence companies. And part of what these researchers and companies are able to see is they are observing continuously uh, ransomware gangs, uh, seeing what infrastructure they are leasing, how they're launching attacks, uh, the, the packages that, that they're transmitting. And sometimes they're able to see that there's been a, a presumed uh, ransomware group that has compromised an American organization, but we know that there's a window where often the ransomware actor will root around the network looking for the high-value asset that they want to encrypt or steal and hold for ransom. And if we can get to these organizations during that window when they already had an intrusion, but damage hasn't yet occurred, we're able to actually drive mitigation before the damaging event happens. And so we built these partnerships with researchers and private companies who will reach out to us and say, you know, we've got a school district in this county where we're seeing an intrusion an hour ago. If you all can get there quickly, you can make a difference. And we will rapidly give that to our regional team members with not just the fact of the intrusion, but also rich technical details to say, you know, this is the host ID. This is the IP address. Uh, these are the credentials. Uh, if you take this concrete step right now, you can prevent harm. And we've done over 400 of these notifications this calendar year alone, uh, which are events where we've actively prevented a ransomware group from achieving their objectives. Now, we know that's only a slice of the overall problem, but we're really excited for these sort of programs, which complement just our broader guidance and assessments to actually help uh, harden the environment against these actors and and increase their marginal cost a bit for targeting uh, U.S. networks. Excellent. So you mentioned the, um, or you referred at least to the new Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022, which I guess one pronounces CIRCIA. To many of us, the degree of progress on new laws and regulations around cyber has been pretty surprising given our fiercely 
divided government these days. How how is CISA looking at that statute, and how are you working to implement it? Yeah, you know, it is a, it is a really exciting law because it reflects the maturation of CISA as a national and indeed global cyber defense agency, but also the fact that our ability to be effective in that job is predicated on data. And so, you know, why is CERCIA, as as we do indeed call it, so important, right? CERCIA is going to enable us to fill three critical functions. The first is to render aid, right? We know that there's, of course, no obligation uh, for a victim organization to avail themselves of government help, but we sure as heck want to offer it. Uh, and, and we have the ability to provide incident response services, threat hunting services. And so the first goal is to make sure that if an organization covered by the eventual rule has an incident, we want to offer help, uh, which mm-hmm. we hope will expand the breadth of organizations availing themselves of free government support in this space. Um, the second is to be able to rapidly share information about how intrusions are occurring, the infrastructure that adversaries are using, the indicators of compromise, because we know that still today, there are way too many intrusions that are perpetrated using the same tactics, techniques, and procedures, the same infrastructure, the mm-hmm. same indicators of compromise. And if we can get a generalizable data set of what adversaries are using and share it quickly, we think that that is going to blunt the ability of our adversaries uh, to reuse the same techniques, the same infrastructure, time and again, and again, increase their marginal costs for targeting entities in our country. But third, and you know, strategically, maybe most excitingly, you know, one of the the gaps we have today as a cybersecurity community is that we have a hard time saying with scientific certainty why breaches happen. You know, even if we know the initial mm-hmm. vector was phishing, for example, you know, we very rarely understand with great fidelity the specific steps that the adversary took to achieve their goals, the specific security controls that were missing, failed, or circumvented, perhaps the product weaknesses that were circumvented or or exploited as part of the intrusion, and therefore our ability with scientific certitude to be able to say these are the most important controls to invest in, these are the most important product security features or design principles to adopt is limited. With the data set that we hope to gain with CERCIA reporting, we will be able to say with much more confidence to enterprises across the country, if you invest in these five security measures first, you will address the preponderance of attacks in the real world. We can say to product vendors, if you invest in these three design principles and these two default controls, you'll be able to invest, address the preponderance of intrusions that we see happening in the real world. We can do that today, but we don't have the scientific rigor of other disciplines that can make such recommendations based upon a generalizable data set. And so we think it's really a game changer for national, even global cybersecurity, assuming we are able to get that sort of rich data that we need to achieve those goals. And do you want to make some news and predict uh, day, time, and place that the regulations will be uh, finalized? Uh, you know, Congress gave us a timeline. We will we will uh, meet or... You will meet or exceed it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that, Thank that, you, sir. That, that is fair. I do, I do have one more question about Circea, but I, I have to note that um, I know you're excited about it, but my favorite named federal statute still remains FIFRA, the Federal <laughs> Insanticide, Fungicide, and Rodanticide Act. And um, please don't ask me how I know of that law's existence. 
Thank you for that tidbit of trivia. Listeners, please email Brian with your congratulations. <laughs> Eric, so, you know, here- about all the sector-specific requirements that are imposed outside of CERCIA, you know, within SEC or, or energy or banking or whatever, th- those are sort of springing up, it seems, organically, uh, often using pre-existing authorities that the uh, oversight agencies have. Does there need to be, the way NSTAC recommended, um, should there be? Are you going to do a rationalizing effort to sort of smooth those out, deconflict them? And also, are you going to try to get your hands on all the data that comes in under those authorities? Yeah. So the Circia statute uh, created a body uh, called the Cyber Incident Reporting Council, uh, the CERCS, everything needs an acronym in government, uh, right. that brings mm-hmm. together the, the heads of all of the different agencies that maintain incident reporting requirements uh, across sectors, uh, including both executive branch regulators as well as independent regulators uh, like like the SEC, uh, et cetera. Uh, you know, we are working with those agencies uh, to promote rationalization and harmonization where possible. Uh, the Socia statute, of course, also uh, provides uh, the ability and indeed the requirement for CISA to attempt to enter into agreements uh, with regulators that impose such requirements uh, in the interest of, of catalyzing a model where those regulators would enable reporting under their regimes to be uh, routed uh, through and by CISA uh, to enable harmonization and consolidation where possible. Uh, now, of course, you know, those agencies uh, maintain autonomy uh, in the drafting and promulgation of their own regulations. Uh, but, you know, we anticipate that the value proposition uh, of increasing harmonization, increasing rationalization uh, will be self-evident. You know, and of course, there's noting that those other regulations may have different purposes, different intent uh, than those that I just outlined for Circia. But certainly we anticipate um, in the time uh, running up to publication of the final rule, there will be great work being done to advance harmonization across regulators and across sectors. I think we would be remiss, Eric, if we didn't uh, allow you to address or ask you to address the concern a lot of companies may have about the security and confidentiality and use of information reported under Circia. Do you have some thoughts on that? You know, we we are deeply attuned to those concerns. Uh, you know, we are an agency where uh, we benefit from many of our senior leaders uh, having spent time uh, in the private sector, uh, certainly in my case, and of course, also our director came from the financial sector and is, is mm-hmm. deeply attuned to these concerns. And so, you know, we want to recognize those concerns and we want to address them in a transparent way. I think Congress has provided robust protections both in CERCIA uh, and in the precursor information sharing law CISA 2015 to provide confidence that information shared with CISA uh, will will not be shared uh, under FOIA, under state sunshine laws, uh, for purposes of regulation, uh, etc. But also, you know, we need to give confidence that information shared with us uh, is going to be stored securely and used uh, as promised. I think one advantage of the lengthy timeline that Congress required for a promulgation of the CERCIA final rule is it is giving us time to ensure that we are building, testing and maintaining the systems to ingest, analyze and store CERCIA data both to derive maximum value and to adhere to these sort of security and privacy requirements that our partners in industry uh, would expect. Uh, And Congress has appropriately uh, been generous in providing us with the resources 
uh, to build out, maintain, and test those systems. And we expect that support to continue. But certainly our goal will be to be fully transparent with the private sector so that they are confident that the information that they're sharing with us will be used to add value in an appropriately secure and privacy protective way. So I, this is my little pet question. David and I have both been in legal roles in the government and in um, management roles in the government. And I'm always curious, as a lawyer uh, and having practiced in a number of different roles around cyber, now you're in an operational management position. What are the differences in roles? And also, how would you advise young lawyers, of which Lawfare has a lot of listeners, uh, interested in getting into not only cybersecurity law, but also government service or corporate security management? Such a wonderful question. Um, you know, I have really benefited throughout my career, as I know both of you have as well, from looking at the same problem from different angles. And I think having that diversity of perspective just makes one more effective as a, as a leader, as a manager, as a problem solver. Um, you know, right now, you know, this is the best role that I've had in my career. It might be the best role that I will ever have in part because I have the privilege to build and lead an absolutely extraordinary team. And also work with uh, brilliant partners, both within government and in the private sector, but also you know, some of the experience that I gained in the private sector working as an attorney, you know, gives me the ability in some cases to look at problems a bit differently and offer perhaps a unique perspective. And so, you know, I think my, my advice uh, to those seeking uh, opportunities in the field is to, to, you know, look for unconventional paths, look for ways to view the problem a bit differently, uh, because even though it is often disconcerting to to look at the problem uh, askew at first, that unique perspective, I think, almost inevitably yields real value later on. Well, I became a, an expert witness, first time I've ever sat on a witness stand in 30 plus years of being a lawyer. I did that a few years ago and uh, definitely made me have uh, more empathy for witnesses than I used to when I was a prosecutor. So <laughs> definitely gives you perspective. So thanks again, Eric. This has been wonderful. Our listeners yeah. will really enjoy it. And we hope uh, to have you back, if not sooner, after those regulations come out. Thanks again for all you both do. Thanks to the whole Lawfare team. It is truly uh, a gift to the security community and it's a privilege to join you both. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, the podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.